Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in chapter 6 and looking at verses 1 through 14 today. And again, I invite you to turn in your scriptures and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired word. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. Last week we came to grips with the fact that when we are born into this world, we have a major problem from the moment that we are conceived. In theological parlance, we refer to it as original sin. It is the result of the sin of Adam in the garden. Because of his sin, every person born thereafter is guilty of his sin, For we were in Adam, and we soon discovered that we are slaves to sin. Furthermore, there is a consequence attached to this sin of Adam, and that is death, both spiritual and physical. But as we have learned over the last few weeks, God, out of his great love and abundant grace, has done something about our predicament. God's actions have enabled him to be both just as well as the justifier. And in the process, God has gained the glory. And all of this he has done in his son, Jesus. Where the first Adam 
failed miserably, the last Adam, Jesus, succeeded perfectly. Just as the sin of Adam was imputed to every person because all of us were in Adam, so the righteousness of Christ is imputed to all those who are in Him. In other words, God took our sin and laid it on Christ, who then took it to the cross in our place, and God took the righteousness of Christ and credited it on our account, on our behalf. He took on our sin And we were given Christ's righteousness. And in this way, God justifies us in His sight. And He makes peace with us through His only begotten Son. Well, Paul's message is that we cannot justify ourselves before God by keeping the law because our sin will always sabotage the attempt. Nor can we hope that God will conveniently overlook our sin because God is holy and just and cannot tolerate sinfulness in His presence, and His justice demands satisfaction. So our only hope is that God will do whatever is necessary to save us, and thankfully God has done that in Christ. The closing statement that Paul made this last Sunday in chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, was this. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That concluding statement is important because Paul is declaring that the reign of sin and death has come to an end in the lives of those who are in Christ. And grace now reigns instead. For those who are in Christ, they are now justified and need no longer fear the consequences of sin and death. And whereas they once were incapable of finding victory over sin, they have now begun the process of sanctification. In other words, they now have the ability through the empowerment of the indwelling Holy Spirit to successfully resist the demands that sin once made upon them. Now this is most important for us to understand, for there are many Christians who live life with something of a defeatist attitude in the face of temptation. Their mindset seems to be that sin still has a death grip on them and that what Christ did at Calvary has taken care of the consequence of sin, that it took care of the eternal punishment connected with our sin, but that it did not do anything to the sin that we inherited from Adam. That is simply not the case. And this is what Paul is getting at in verses 4, 5, and 6 in this chapter. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
Now, many of us read that with an eye towards the life we will enjoy after our own physical death and resurrection. And quite honestly, verse 5 is read at funerals with great regularity to remind and assure those who gather at the funeral of a believer that there is a resurrection coming that is every bit like the resurrection of Christ. Paul would not argue that there will be great victory in the life to come. But his point here is that the resurrected life begins when we are embraced by God's Spirit and God's gracious offer of salvation in Christ Jesus is received by faith and we are justified. Our walk in the newness of life that he speaks of is not at some point on the other side of death, It is something that begins the moment God declares that we are His, that we are justified. Some years ago, there arose a controversy within what I will call the Christian community, remnants of which you will still hear from time to time, that suggested that it was possible for a person to receive Christ as their Savior, but not as their Lord. They were referred to as carnal Christians, suggesting that they were justified, but that their sanctification was not underway because they had not yet, quote-unquote, made Christ their Lord. Now, if you have listened regularly to me over these past 30 years, then you know that this is always a hot button with me whenever I hear a radio minister suggest how important it is that his listeners make Jesus their Lord. You and I do not make Jesus our Lord. He is Lord regardless of any decisions that you and I make. We don't make Him the Savior or the Lord or the Creator or God's prophet or priest or king or anything else. He is all of those things without one whit of help from you or me. Here's the thing. If you are a regenerated believer, if you have been born from above, as Jesus tells Nicodemus that He must be in order to see the kingdom, then things will begin to change in your behavior. The Holy Spirit whom God has poured into your hearts, read Romans 5.5 again, has the task of affecting transformation in us. Whereas before we were regenerated to new life, we were slaves to sin and we naturally did those things that were pleasing to the flesh. We're like little kids at home without any parental guidance. Once God's grace came to us by means of His Holy Spirit and resurrected us from our dead spiritual condition and we responded to the gospel by faith, our instantaneous justification led to a lifelong process of sanctification. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And the verb there is a perfect active indicative, meaning it is a completed thing. It isn't somewhere off in the future. Paul wants his readers to understand that when we come to Christ, God joins us to Him in such a deep and personal way that it can rightly be said that when Christ died on the cross, my old self, my old nature, my old man, 
was crucified with him. Now that may seem odd to us, but it has to do with the fact that Jesus was our representative on the cross the same way that Adam was our representative in the garden. I am guilty of Adam's sin because I was in Adam and I am free of my old man because I was in Christ. Now that process of sanctification does involve us. Our regeneration does not involve us. We did not choose to be born from above. That's something that God, according to His eternal decree, determined before the world began. If you question that, read Ephesians 1. But once the Holy Spirit regenerates us to new life and breaks the grip of sin and death, remember what Paul has said, that we were dead in our trespasses. Ephesians 2. The Spirit grants us the gift of faith and then woos us to the Father through the Son. And when we place that faith in Christ, we are justified by the Father and His love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. When you come across, for example, verses that speak of our resisting the Holy Spirit or grieving the Holy Spirit and so on, it's speaking about this stage of our spiritual development. And that's why Paul says in Romans, or in uh, verses 12 through 13 in this chapter, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, Paul would not be giving these imperatives to these believers if this was an impossibility. He's making them aware of the new reality in which they now exist because of what God has done in Christ on their behalf. We must remember that Paul's writing to an audience that he is assuming is fully in Christ. He's not writing... To unbelievers, he is writing to those who have been redeemed. But for those who have been born again, who have been born from above, it is now possible to begin a resistance movement where our old enemy is concerned. We are now no longer slaves to sin, but we now have a new master. Grace is in charge, and our wills have been set free to choose something other than sin. And so Paul urges us to begin making better choices. Stop offering parts of our bodies to sin, but rather present yourselves fully to God. In other words, when the office staff gathers around the water cooler and someone offers up a juicy bit of gossip about somebody else, walk away. Don't present your ears for the hearing. Don't present your lips for any more uttering. Don't present your mind for the reception of it. Or when it's time to do your taxes and the temptation presents itself to take a deduction that does not apply to you, but you think that you can pull it off, don't go there. 
Don't sacrifice your honor for a few hundred dollars. Stop to consider the ramifications of an audit and what it will feel like to face that IRS agent who has seen that you took a charitable deduction to a church but with no supporting documentation and then questions how cheating and Christianity go together. Don't present parts of your body to sin, but rather present yourself to God. He's the one who bought you. Recognize that grace is now at work in you and God is actively engaged in a spiritual project whereby the Holy Spirit is transforming you into a brand new person. Paul says in Philippians 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When we come to believing faith and are justified, God really changes us. God works on and in us in such a way that our will and our work begin to travel in a new direction. We discover that our propensity for the things associated with our old life begin to fade over time and the desires of our heart are more towards the things of the Lord. And this is evidence to us that the promises of Scripture are true. It's evidence to us that God is at work in us. And if we are not seeing this transformation, if we don't really sense a new love towards Christ and the things of Christ, we would do well to pray fervently for God to enliven us to the things of the kingdom, for there is a good chance that we have not really yet been regenerated. Now, Paul does not write what he does here simply to encourage and instruct the believers on the process of sanctification, he's writing in part to counter a heresy, the heresy of antinomianism. That is, those who argue that since we are saved by God's grace, we've been given a free pass to live life any way we desire. The law they contend has been rendered null and void, so we don't have to worry about keeping it any longer because grace is now in charge, so skip Kick back and enjoy the ride. Don't worry about sinning. There are no longer any consequences associated with it. Don't worry about any of the sins of the flesh because Christ has died a substitutionary death and has it all covered. We're in the clear. Eat, drink, be merry. Let the good times roll. The early church faced a culture that separated body and soul, insisting that what happened in the body had no impact on the soul. And traces of that philosophy are buried within this antinomian argument. But it wasn't the early church alone that faced such a challenge. There are a good many Christians today who espouse such an ideology when they argue that we're no longer under the law, but rather we're now under grace, And that's true when we are speaking of keeping the law as a means of being justified before God. It's also true when we're speaking of any need to maintain the ceremonial law of the Old Testament that 
prohibited the eating of shellfish or mixing cotton and wool together or a host of other ceremonial regulations. But it's not true that God's moral law can now be ignored. It did not suddenly become okay with God to commit adultery. It did not suddenly become fashionable to seek a, or to sneak a cashmere sweater out of Macy's. And yet there were those then and there are those today who make this strange argument that there's a huge loophole in the gospel whereby the law of God can simply be dismissed without another thought. The Apostle John declares, By this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in Him, but whoever keeps His word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. The twisted nature of this anti-law or antinomian thinking was that since God's response to our sin was to extend grace toward sinners, remember that it is the ungodly whom God justifies, then let's provide God with all kinds of opportunities to shower grace upon us by sinning robustly every day. And this is what is behind Paul's rhetorical question here in the very first verse. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And his answer is an unqualified by no means. Perish the thought. Let that suggestion never enter your mind. And Paul can only think of what Christ went through at Calvary. He can only envision what his death entailed. And knowing the horror of surrounding uh, crucifixion, he understands the price that was paid to purchase our salvation. The thought that anyone would, in the face of God's conviction of their sin, besmirch that sacrifice by failing to repent, to turn away from their sin, that appalls him. And he will repeat his abhorrence of this thought in verse 15 when he raises the question again and offers the same response. By no means. But more than that, Paul does not want anyone to experience hopelessness when they fall into sin. He doesn't want anyone to think that there is no hope for them. There is hope. There's victory. It can't be accomplished in the flesh alone, but it is possible through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit who begins a transformation in us, this sanctification. Now before we leave this section of this chapter, we need to focus for a few minutes on this union with Christ phrase that Paul speaks of here. For this is something that governs much of Paul's thinking, not only here, but in other letters as well. Paul sees our union with Christ as the basis for so much of what is now true for us as believers. In some places, he phrases it as our being in Christ. This is something that God does on our behalf that is difficult to comprehend, but which Jesus conveyed to his first disciples when he offered them the metaphor of the vine and the branches in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, 
He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now that image is helpful here as we seek to understand what Paul is saying because he is declaring that through our union with Christ, there are things that are now eternally true of us that we may struggle to believe. He is saying that we died to sin because we were united with Christ. He's saying that because we were united with Christ, we were crucified with Him. He's saying that because we were united with Christ, when Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we shared in that victory such that we too might walk in newness of life. And it's because of this union with Christ that our old self was crucified so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, experientially, we find this difficult to believe because we're intimately familiar with sin and temptation, are we not? Can I get an amen to that? Not one of us has reached a point of spiritual perfection, nor will we in this life. In the passage I quoted a moment ago from 1 John, the apostle was not arguing that true believers will keep the commandments perfectly. He goes on to say, just a few verses later, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. All that being said, it does not keep Paul from saying, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul wants the Roman believers and us to grasp hold of this spiritual truth that because of our union with Christ, because of all that He accomplished through His life and death and resurrection and ascension, there is a new spiritual reality that is available to all who believe in Him that will provide us with victory over sin and more and more we will begin to experience the joy of our new Master who came not to enslave us, but to impart to us life in abundance. Sin brought death, but through Christ we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. God has done in Christ what we could not do ourselves And He invites us now by the power of His Spirit to begin to walk in a new life. To begin to enjoy our new life today. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment that we might pray together.